welcome to TLF Gems, a podcast about customer experience and insight from TLF Research. I'm Stephen Hampshire. And I'm Greg Roche. And this time we're going to be discussing Chapter 12 from our book, Customer Satisfaction. I really like Chapter 12. I think partly, so Chapter 12 is about actionable outcomes. And it slightly made me realise that this is why everyone does surveys, but this is the most difficult bit. And all the other things lead to this moment. Yeah, even in our book, you get into the detail of the process, the mm. reliability, um, the robustness, the correct sample size. And of course, you've got to ask the right questions to the right people in the right way. And there is the whole technical science behind that. But I think this comes along at a very timely reminder of saying, actually, this is why we're doing it, remember. <laughs> it, it is, um, it, it's interesting, the, the tone uh, in the, the sort of the introductory paragraph yes, of the chapter exactly. is quite interesting because it, it, it's sort of, it's almost a little bit shamefaced going, well, you know, we've spent all this time talking about methodology. And of course, you know, particularly as researchers, we, we, we do focus on the methodology and, and that matters. But ultimately, it is a means to an end and, and improving satisfaction is, is what it's all about. So what proportion of surveys, of customer surveys, do you think actually end up with some really tangible, can-do outcomes? Well, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, I would say, perhaps this is a little bit biased, I think all of the surveys we do (laughs) end up with the potential for action. I mean, that that doesn't necessarily say action always happens, but but I think the, the, the evidence you need is there. And that's partly because of the methodology that we've talked about lends itself to it. And I know ones that don't or aren't actionable are usually because there's been a flaw in the process of getting there. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think over the years, what we've developed is not a shortcut exactly, but but a a sort of reliable way of generating a small number of priorities for improvement. And that's that's the methodology that we're stepping through chapter by chapter in this book. If you follow this process... Mm you will end up with a small number of clear priorities for improvement. And if you go and do something about those, customers will be happier. You've used the phrase twice there, priorities for improvement. And I think it's just worth explaining the logic behind that. And we often go to research speak and just call it PFIs. And the idea of having two or three priorities for improvement is that the people who really are at the top of our league table because taking action, a noticeable action, is really difficult. What they do is really do focus on two or three priorities for improvement. What are we going to spend all our time and effort on? And we'll talk a little bit about how you get to you know, that. But where do, we, where do we spend our time and effort that we can really drive up on customer satisfaction? Because the danger at results, presentation, time, is that people knee-jerk at single things, there's Mm. lots of numbers, there's lots of comments, we can address this, we can do that. And the problem is there isn't sometimes a plan put together. So resources are spread too thin, so nothing's perceived to happen or actually happens. So having two or three things where you can say, hold on, we're focusing on that, we're not focusing on the other, and if we spend any time focusing on the other, why aren't we focusing on the original thing? And that focus, I think helps improve actionability. Absolutely, yeah. And I think what you're always looking for, you've got a relatively short window in which you can hope to plan some changes, make some changes, and make customers notice those changes. Yeah. And the more focused you are, the bigger a splash you can make 
um, on a relatively small number of things, um, the more more likely it is that that you know, a change is going to happen, but b customers are, are going to notice it. And I just think it's it's kind of common sense, isn't it? That you know when you're prioritizing, it's in it's in the word, isn't it? Yeah. To prioritize, yeah. you can't prioritize everything. You you have to choose what you're going to prioritize. Um, and that's really the only way to change anything, I think. Yeah, and I think it is sometimes I, I, I feel quite a tough sell because to, to rein clients in a little bit, because there often is obviously a load of enthusiasm. We can do this, we can do that. And there's a lot of things that can be addressed. And, and there's always some quick wins that come out of the survey, you know, particularly in B2B surveys with a specific comment from a specific customer, often a really important one, where you can say, well, let's just go back and address that. And that's, you know, that, that, that's very quick, low-hanging fruit. But I think sometimes it, I, I find myself having to say, okay, yeah, but let's remember to focus on these. Because <laughs> uh, these are the things which really make a difference. And we'll probably get, touch a little bit in terms of how we identify the priorities for improvement. Yeah, no, I think we will, I'm sure. I, I think the first thing to say, and something that, it, I guess it's so obvious to us, we, we sometimes forget to say it, but your your priorities are probably not your lowest satisfaction scores. And similarly, they're, they're probably not the things that customers complain about most. Sometimes they are, but, but, but they're often yeah. not. Uh, and I think that's a really important principle that it isn't necessarily a case of fixing the thing that the customers talk about most, yeah. whether it's complaints or whether it's the lowest satisfaction score. Uh, and I think that understanding that the thing that makes the most difference to, to improve will not necessarily be the lowest scoring thing is quite an important starting point. Yeah, so let, let's just expand on that a bit because at first it sounds a bit logic say, illogical saying don't focus on what customers are least satisfied yeah. with because in some ways that's intuitively quite an obvious yeah. starting point but that's missing something, isn't it? Yeah, which is, I mean, the, the, the cornerstone of our whole methodology is doing best what matters most, which we'll, we'll come back to in a bit more detail in a second. But I think if, if you take a step back from that and say, well, in a more loose, intuitive sense, certain things I might not think you're great at, but really that's not why I came to you in the first place. Yeah, you know, I wasn't yeah. expecting you to be very great at that. Yeah. And that, that word expectation is at the root of a lot of the, a little, so the academic theory around satisfaction is that satisfaction is all is essentially you know quality versus expectation. So this is how good I thought or I wanted you to be, and this is how good you were. And as the book does quite a good job of explaining, the early attempts to measure customer satisfaction explicitly worked on that model. Yeah. So they tried to measure what do you expect, and they tried to measure how you were delivering against that. Yeah. And in practice, that doesn't work very well yeah. because expectations is. It, it's a tricky word, um, yeah. and customers don't necessarily know what you mean when you yeah. ask them to score expectations. And it tended to, to be quite operational expectations. You know, was a telephone answered within three rings? How many times? Did, you know, how, and it, it. I think a lot of that early stuff didn't get to. It's not about operationally what's happened. It's how did the customer feel? Yeah, I think. That, and the, the, Actually, there's a whole load of flaws uh, yeah. in the early stuff. Oh, flaws is unfair. Um, uh, collectively, our thinking has moved on, uh, I think. And, and in practice, what we thought might work 30 years ago, we found over the years doesn't work or, or can be improved. So I don't, I don't want to dismiss 
you know, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. So yeah. if it hadn't been for the people who invented Servcore, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing today. Absolutely. Um, but I do think over the years we've learned what works uh, better than that. Yeah. Yeah, that explanation exceeded my expectations, Stephen. You wowed <laughs> me with that. Totally I'm forever good. going to be loyal to, to, you know, to you for that. So... If we're not focusing on what customers complain about the most or what customers um, are least satisfied with, I think the book then starts to talk about the gap, doesn't it? It mm. is really then about the difference in the important score versus the satisfaction score and, and looking at the gap. Sometimes record to, uh, it's referred to as like the dissatisfaction gap. Again, it's such a sort of a, such an intuitive and such a, a, an easy piece of analysis that that we almost tend to gloss over it. So, yeah, you have scores for importance, you have scores for satisfaction. Or can I say ratings for importance? I like the phrase ratings for importance. Yeah. And scores um, for satisfaction. I know being a little bit semantical, but I think the importance, it's, it is a little bit how they compare to each other. So I think it's a rating. I know, it, it, I know it's an independent rating, but I, th I think that's a good word. And then they score the satisfaction. Yeah, I'd kick back if you want. No, I, I don't disagree with that. You have a, a number for importance, so that's oh, saying you have a number for satisfaction, yeah, and and therefore you know you've got two numbers on the same scale. Therefore, you can do a simple bit of, of maths and work out the gap between the two. Yeah. So I think the simplicity is the strength of it. It, it is, and I think we'll, we'll perhaps come back to this later on. But when we're doing a presentation uh, based on on a client survey results, we'll produce a doing best what matters most slide. Uh, and on that slide, we'll have a chart with the important score, the importance ratings and the satisfaction <laughs> scores with the gap sort of therefore implicitly between the two. And what I really like about that is that however much the people you're presenting to have sort of bought into the process beforehand or know about the process or uh, even understand the methodology, when they look at that slide, they've got it on one page. This is what matters to customers. This is how good a job they think we're doing at the moment. Therefore, it's pretty obvious what we need to, to fix. You know, the, the priorities for improvement, particularly if you're not very good, they do out. jump off yeah. that slide. Yeah. And what I love most about that is the, and, and I tend to say this to clients, is that this is not what I think. This is not what we think. We're not telling you how to run your business. We're not telling you what you need to fix. This is all from customers. Customers told us what matters to them. That's why it's on the questionnaire in the first place. Yeah. They told us how much it matters to them, which is the important scores. Yeah. And they told us how good a job they think you're doing at the moment. So customers are telling you what the priorities for improvement are. Stephen isn't telling you, TLF yeah. isn't telling yeah. you, customers are telling yeah. you. Uh, and I think that's one of the real strengths of our methodology. We're not going in as smart-ass consultants. We're going in as the voice of the customer, if you like. Yeah, and, and I absolutely think you know it's really good to have I sometimes think we are literally just bringing the voice of the customer into the boardroom. They've given us certain information, scores, comments, they've answered certain questions, and what we're doing is interpreting that back in a way that makes it really easy to identify what are the two or three priority, two or three priorities for, in, for, for improvement. And I think it, it's like you say, it jumps off the page because there will be some big gaps there particularly in things which are important to customers. If customer satisfaction is all about doing best what matters most, in one chart that shows what matters most and what you're doing best at, yeah. and certainly where you want to be doing best at. Yeah, and I guess where, where it doesn't, so if it doesn't do that job, the reason is, is almost always 
um, because you're already very good. So maybe you're lucky enough that your first ever satisfaction survey puts you in, let's say, the top quartile of our league table. It's unlucky, but, uh, unlikely, sorry, but, yeah. but maybe. More often, uh, the sort of standard journey is that you start you know, somewhere just below halfway, perhaps, do your first survey, there'll be some big gaps. So some of the some of the things you really ought to be doing very well, customers won't be satisfied with for a whole load of reasons. Yeah. And then over the years, you work hard, you close the gaps, you improve on the PFIs. And at some point, you will find that that doing best what matters most chart isn't all that helpful anymore. Yeah. Uh, and, and that tends to be roughly when you enter the top quartile. I was going to say exactly the same. I think top quartile, it then you have to get into the segments behind it, the details behind it, because by that point, you're obviously delivering the top quartile, you're delivering some really high levels of satisfaction. So it's then perhaps more finding the areas where you're not. So just jumping back, we do a doing best what matters most chart. There's a gap there. What else when we're picking the priorities for improvement or, or are those just the, is that just the only thing we pick? No, it's, it, it's not the only thing we pick. Um, and. The chapter actually does quite a good job of, of outlining yeah. the sorts of things we'd think about. So, I mean, I'm just going to read through the sort of list of, of, of bullet points that are in the chapter. So you've got the satisfaction gap, you've got satisfaction drivers, which is looking at a combination of, of stated importance and what we call impact, some people would call driver analysis or... What, I, what are the gibbons, what are the enhancers, yeah. or what are the hygiene factors, or, 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 or all that sort of stuff, yeah. It talks about... Dissatisfaction drivers, in other words, where are the most, where is the largest percentage of, of dissatisfaction amongst yeah. customers? Loyalty differentiators, so what makes the difference between loyal customers uh, and less loyal customers? And then finally, and this is one that I think we should probably debate a little bit, what it calls business impact. In other words, a combination of, of how much difference will it make to customers and how difficult or expensive is it going to be for us to do? Yeah. And that's, that's really interesting because I think that little list and this, this moment in the process, this is the bridge between research, I was going to say the real world, and, 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 and the client doing stuff. Up to this point, everything is academically sound, absolutely academically sound. It's that, but picking the right priorities for improvement whilst you can use science behind it, particularly if there's some big gaps in something that's really important to customers, that will be an obvious thing to fix. Mm. But I think in terms of identifying the priorities for improvement, this is where a researcher and client have to come together yeah. for a, different, a few different things. I think like the business impact matrix to, you know, to understand what is the cost of addressing this? Is it short, medium, long term? But I think it's also about reaffirming what's the client trying to get out of this, what's their vision, what's their journey, what's their ambition. Because some of those things, um, if there's a big gap, it fundamentally needs to be addressed to raise up satisfaction. But there's usually then a little debate, <laughs> what is the second and third, do you have three, do you have four, do you have two? And I think really understanding where the client's at in its journey, what vehicles can you use. So take, for example, a recent survey I've done um, with the Building Society, and they have some things in place already. They suspected there was something. They have a, a pro, uh, an improvement program in place. It came out at the third gap, and you say, yeah, definitely a priority for improvement because you're already doing that. Let's put more emphasis behind it. You're, what you are planning to do is exactly the right thing. Great, and you use that vehicle because that vehicle's already in place, perhaps rather than saying, well, let's go for this other one, which might get you marginally better returns, 
but you haven't got anything in place to to, yeah. you know, to do that. Yeah, and I think a bit of pragmatism. Pragmatism makes sense. is a word I was struggling to find. Thank you. Yeah. Because it, yeah, it, I always say to people, you know, do something now. And it, yeah, we could spend six months, you know, navel gazing about precisely which thing to do. But and some organisations do. That's one of our top ten traits at this moment. Do not let paralysis by analysis. Yeah hold you back, as you say, it's better just doing something. Let's get on and make change. The, the slight concern I have around the business impact aspect of this is I think there's a trap you can fall into, which is you only ever do the quick wins. You never get to the, the long-term stuff. You never yeah. get to the expensive stuff. And sometimes that is just what you need to do. What we should probably do is set PFIs not based on this year's survey for this year, but over, let's say, three years or five years. It'd be the same sort of period that we might set targets over. Yeah. Because really what we, we, we would like to do, I think, is say, well, year one, we've got these big problems in a, in a core business area. We need to fix those problems now. And actually, the, some of them will be relatively cheap or easy, hopefully, so we get a quick win. But we need already to be thinking about how are we going to set about solving not problems, but enhancing this thing in five years' time yeah. so that when we get towards the top of the league table, actually yeah. we, we're already in motion to, to differentiate ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I think this, this ties back to you know, where we talked about satisfaction drivers and the dissatisfaction drivers. The way I like to think about the satisfaction drivers matrix is to say, when we look at that, We've got drivers up in the top left-hand corner. Sorry, we've got Giffen's up in the top left-hand corner. Yeah. And year one, first thought I would always have is, do we have significant levels of dissatisfaction on a given? If we do, we need to fix it quickly because that's driving customers away. Yeah. Once that's done, then we can start looking over on the right-hand side of the satisfaction drivers chart, the things that yeah. have a, a higher impact. And the important point about that is that now it's not just about fixing dissatisfaction. It might be about growing our top box. Yeah. And that is a totally different sort of approach to, to thinking about improvement. I and mean, I sometimes liken it to, you know, fixing dry, fixing givens is a bit like uh, Six Sigma, continuous improvement, yeah. zero defects kind of logic. Yeah. Building on the right-hand side of that sat driver's matrix is more of a design thinking, what can we add? How can we differentiate? Yeah. What, what is going to set us apart in terms of the yeah. experience we create? It's a more um, fundamental and a more... Uh, sort of creative view of the customer yeah. experience. And what you're describing there is the journey that's going to happen. Mm. Low-hanging fruit, if we can get them in year one, make sure you've got the foundations right <laughs> by having all those givens sorted out, and then you move onto on, on it. And, and this is where it can get quite interesting, because particularly perhaps in years one, two, possibly year three, it might well be, and is often highly likely, that the priorities for improvement are the same. You know, yeah. it's about delivery. Customers are not happy with deliveries. That's the area we need to work on, and it's not a quick fix. And there can sometimes be a bit, oh, well, we looked at that last year, mm -hmm. and our scores have improved. Yes, but it's so important to customers, you need to improve it more. So let's get back. Yeah, but we, it's not, we're getting a bit bored. No, <laughs> you know, it's about doing best what matters most. There's a gap there. It's really important. So having the ability, I think, to keep re-energising, which if you've evolved your questionnaire and you've done some different probing, that, 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 that can sort of help that. But what you're articulating there, I think, is the journey that you're going on uh, over time of, of moving up to world-class levels of customer satisfaction.
Yeah, I, I think that's it. It's, it's about slight. It's just a small thing, but it's a shift from seeing it as just fixing problems. And, and realistically, in the early days, that that is what you're going to have to focus on. To bit by bit, okay, how can we really stand above others here? Um, and I do. Th- I think that's you, you can't fix your fix problems as a way to be world class. No. You know, you need, you need to do something more than yeah, that. It's the first rung on the ladder. I think what that nicely sort of dovetails into as well is the the role of the researcher in terms of how results are presented. So earlier on in, in, in previous um, podcasts, we've talked about the beauty of MPS score, is it so simple? And I think when there is such um, a lot of work gone into um, a project like this, I think being able to come out with some really strong, simple analysis. I mean, we were at a conference this week where you know, a, a very um, um, impressive speaker from an insurance company, she talked about having that killer slide. Mm. You know, that one slide that just says, basically, you know, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to focus on, and here's some supporting evidence to it. And sometimes it's brave making that because there's hours of work gone in, it's someone's jobs, there's lots of stats, you know, we, you know, we can quite easily knock out a 100, 100 slide PowerPoint presentation, all of which has its same interesting bits in it. But I think in terms of making actions happen, you've got to get back to that simplicity. You're dealing with senior people who you want to say, yes, we want to sort that out. So being able to sort of quickly pull it together at that level, which it says, hey, there's lots of analysis here. This is where we need to focus first, second, third, and this is what customers are saying we need to do. Yeah. I think we can help action happen, and we can certainly not help action happen if we go the other if we go the other way. Yeah, I think for me, absolutely, when you're communicating it, the simple's not quite the right word, but the more focused it can be. So this is what we need to do, and I think what you really need to be able to do in order to drive change is just tell a sort of compelling story about it. So you know, this is what we're working at, this is what we need to do in order to fix that, and this is why it matters for customers. Um, so you've got that kind of combination of heads and hearts, you've got the kind of the proof, but you've also got a bit of a an emotional uh, argument around why does it matter, what impact does it have on customers, what impact will it have it on us, will it have on us when we get it right. And I think, yeah, if you do that clearly and punctually, that's just going to have a lot more impact than 100 slides of anything. Absolutely, and I think one of the thing, one of the punches that really resonates with people is benchmarking. We're going to talk in the next podcast about sort of comparison with competitors, but I think at that moment where we put you on a league table and say, in the world of customer satisfaction, not against your competitors, not mm-hmm. against your sector, that we can do all those different things, but in terms of delivering customer satisfaction, your score of X sits here, and. If we look at some of our most longest-standing successful clients who now deliver world-class levels of customer satisfaction, none of them started off delivering that. It was Mm. the journey they'd been on. And part of that journey was the benchmark that showed a burning bridge when these very successful organizations accepted that we're actually not very good at satisfying. We're below average. And using a phrase like below average in some of these organisations is not a commonly used phrase, but it provided that burning bridge to say, hold on, that's not us, that's not acceptable, that's not about our future, 
Right, and I, I, and I think that's, let me say, benchmarking at its best without reopening a whole debate. Yeah. I totally agree. I think, for me, benchmarking does one and a half useful things. Right. Um, and the one... That's, that's one more than you, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. So, yeah, the, the first thing that benchmarking is useful for is exactly what you said, is it can make people unhappy with their score. And without that, you go, your satisfaction index is 75. And people think, well, that sounds kind of okay. I mean, um, if I got 75 out of 100, I'd be quite happy. So you need that context to say, well, yeah. it's below average. 75 is not a very good satisfaction index. Below average. Oh, okay, well, that's so, something I need to think about. The half is that on a more specific requirement level, it can help you understand what's possible. So sometimes you get one of these myths like, oh, well, you know, no one gets a decent score for this. And you think, well, actually, someone is getting a decent score for that. So it, it, it can slightly counter those kind of myths about what, what is achievable. Yeah. Both externally, because there's people on that top of that league table who are scoring over nine, or index over 90, so are scoring nine on those requirements that you don't think you can. But I think even more so when you start doing a bit of internal benchmarking, because if you're breaking those results down by, let's say, geography, um, you will see a range of scores, and there will be a, someone at the top of that league table who is getting the scores. And often I think it gives hope to the organisation or some practical hope of saying, do you know what, why don't you all do what this region does mm. or deliver the same levels of satisfaction that this region does? Why don't you understand what they do and see that region at the bottom? i definitely start focusing on that. Why don't you swap the, you know, the people in charge around or something? So it shows it high scores can be achieved with our customers because someone in the organisation is doing it. So now we need to replicate that best, yeah. that best practice. In, in my briefing about storytelling, um, I use Nancy Duarte's model of storytelling right. uh, as a sort of argument for change. And that's one of the, the, the ways that really ties in with that, I think, because her, her model is essentially, you know, when you're arguing for change, you use a story model that says, you need to do something, you need to take an action that will get us from where we are to where we'd like to be. Um, to the world as it is, to the world as it could be. Yeah. And I think what that sort of internal benchmarking approach does is say, well, look, here's where we are. The average is where we are. Where we could be is where, you know, Dave over in Bristol or wherever it is, who's achieving the best scores, that best practice is where we all could be. So that is, a, a it's a sort of existence proof, as you yeah. say, you know, that is possible. And B, it kind of sketches what the world as it could be is yeah. going to look, look like, like and yeah. feel like. Yeah. Um, so I think it, it that's an example of how, you know, the customer research can fit very nicely into a storytelling model for, for arguing for change. Yeah. So in terms of sort of pulling that chapter together, it really is about identifying these two or three priorities for improvement for having actionable outcomes, which if you've followed the methodology you should be at, but really then identifying two or three key things that we're going to sort of focus on. And then that sort of brings, brings the research to the right point it needs to be. Not saying these things are easy to do, but at least we know what we're focusing on to drive up customer satisfaction. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, if you're using iTunes, please subscribe, rate and review us. Uh, and if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at TLF Research or at tlfresearch.com. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.